Hello and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Adam Barrett. Adam is the owner and lead reliability engineer at Apex Ridge Reliability, which is a full-service reliability consulting firm in Salem, Massachusetts. Adam has worked as a reliability engineer and manager for over 20 years in a variety of industries. He has a BS and MS in mechanical engineering. Adam, welcome, and th thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tim. It's really great to talk with you. Adam, your consulting work has been focused on accelerated testing methods, and you've built reliability organizations from scratch. The other day, you shared with me an interesting perspective about cultural differences in reliability. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yes. Something that I always you know, thought was very interesting is this um, basically preconception that Western European and uh, American engineering and manufacturing industry um, in comparison to Asian, um, the Western is considered very creative, but generally does not have good reliability. And the Eastern is not as creative, but has fantastic reliability and quality. So these are stereotypes. Of course, there's different cases that contradict that. But as an overall stereotype, uh, there's truth to it. And you can find a lot of very consistent examples that support that. So I've always wondered why. Why is that the case? And you know, being involved in reliability and reliability culture and coming into organizations and trying to change their practices, uh, this became an area of interest to study. One of the things sure. I found that led, led me to uh, that led me to a very uh, interesting concept was in studying the stereotypes with math with Eastern and Western culture. Um, there are some, uh, even at the university you know, levels, people have based their whole work. One is uh, Karen Fusion in Northwestern. Uh, and studying these differences, uh, wanted to understand why they're different, because typically Asian cultures perform much better at math. And there hmm. were a couple factors. One that came up that was very interesting was that there are roots in it in the difference in agriculture. And this caught my attention because agriculture is the first technology. Uh, this is the beginning of us trying to technically control our environment. I mean, most of uh, the first inventions were based around that, either you know, creating food or storing food. Eastern sure. uh, is based around rice. And Western, European, and American is based around wheat. These are two very different crops. So the way this relates is the Western wheat, uh, it is something that you, you effectively plant and you then wait and you don't have a lot of interaction with it as it's growing and then you harvest. And you can increase your you know, yield effectively by doing more, by just you know, doing hundreds and hundreds of acres. And you have these short bursts of, of engagement with your product, let's say, and if you can invent machinery that can can help you with that, um, you are going to you know, be more profitable effectively. And you have the downtime to be creative and to invent. So uh, you know, very early on, you, will, you can find imagery of these machines that are being you know, horse-drawn and um, that are pretty advanced as far as planting and harvesting. 
And if you look at weed right. fields in general, they're very they're very simple. They just go on and on until the sunset, you know, the flat open areas. If you look at rice, you look at rice paddies, they're beautiful. They're mm -hmm. works of art. Um, you see them terraced in the sides of hills and mountains, and they're small. Uh, most rice paddies pretty much are about the same square footage as a big hotel room. And a farmer might manage only three of those, you know, a single family, three or four of those. So very small. And the rice requires you to have very diligent daily control of both the variables going in and monitoring the outputs coming out. To have a good rice paddy, you have to lay down specific layers of clay and soil, effectively engineering materials. You have to control daily the water levels relative to the plant. If the water levels are a little bit too high, you lose the whole paddy. If they're too low, you lose the whole paddy. If you don't control the mixture of what you're doing for fertilizers exactly, you lose the whole system. So you're engineering also, you're engineering uh, complicated irrigation systems. And you are every day, you have to every day be out there checking it and adjusting it. And a lot of times that's why you see these built on inclines so that you have the water pressure high and low to, you know, for your irrigation system, it's difficult to do in a valley. So right, right away, you can see how this would develop very different mindsets in, you know, technology and, and production. So Adam, how does that translate into the way people look at reliability uh, in uh, today's model, you know, moving away from agriculture? So if this is, this isn't just agriculture, this becomes part of the culture. Uh, this becomes mm -hmm. the skill sets that get rewarded and passed down and taught from parent to child, and then is going to carry over into um, all other parts. And so you are naturally going to gravitate towards the things that create benefit from those natural practices. So in Western culture, uh, you have this, you know, creativity, whoever can do the best inventing of machinery and, you know, and other technologies is going to be able to plant the most acreage and harvest the most acreage. And there's not a really a lot as far as when you're doing those practices. I mean, if you look at the, this is how it actually very interestingly expands even into management, because hmm. if you look at also the ownership and uh, in government structure around that. Um, if you look at the European, you kind of had these, you know, aristocratic landlords in this very oppressive feudal system with peasants doing the farming. You can have peasants doing that kind of farming because you just stand out there with a whip and tell them to run the machinery or do the task. They don't have to do it precisely. They don't have to do it accurately. It doesn't make a deal, a big deal to have a lot of variability. Um, if you look at even going way back to those same time periods in Asian culture, what you find is you find this tremendous sense of ownership of the individual farmer. You couldn't have that kind of aristocratic system in place because if your farmer screwed up the water level by a little bit, you lose the whole thing. And so their system was much more of a where you had a landlord that charged rent, a set rent, no matter what the yield was. And if you could create a very high yield, you got that much more profit. So there's this ownership that goes right down to the person who's on their hands and knees doing the work. You know, Adam, that reminds me a little bit of uh, how uh, hard we work to try to get folks to take ownership of quality issues uh, in a, a production environment or even in a, a, a service environment. Uh, sounds like uh, cultures that are, would be more focused on rice agriculture would uh, have an easier time uh, getting that kind of engagement. 
that's exactly the difference. Now, I'm not saying that Western culture, you know, is in, one is better than the other. They just yield very different things. The in the Eastern culture, you're going to have a very hard time having, you know, seeing a lot of creative innovations come out of that. If you are doing day to day and extremely diligent tasks like that, you're not sitting around inventing. Um, and if you and then in the Western, you're going to have these really, you know, a uh, fantastic kind of mindset of invention and benefiting from invention. But you're also not going to take the long term ownership. And you see that in the organizations in a lot of cases, some cases more than others. But you have the people who invent and those people who have invent have a sense of when they've done inventing it, handing it off to other people. The ownership doesn't continue. Hmm. So if you are being only rewarded for being innovative and inventing, um, you're not going to be taking reliability and quality type mindsets into the invention stage. And then this is something that has to be added in later. And anybody who's worked closely with reliability and quality knows it doesn't work very well to add in. You can't add in reliability and quality later. At best, in a later stage of product development, at best you can measure it, but you really aren't going to change it. And a lot of this is because it's very compartmentalized, you know, ownership and compartmentalized roles and the very limited sharing that goes on, which is very different than the Eastern culture where it's, uh, there's a great sharing all the way across and never the sense of handing off. Adam, let me build on that a little bit. A lot of companies are choosing to contract out their testing and reliability engineering functions working with third parties. What are some of the problems with that model, and what can companies do to make this work more effectively? Well, kind of right away, that further, further exasperates the problem because to, um, you know, uh, the, the objective here is, I would say, you know, if, this, if our audience is uh, in an Asian techno, you know, technology-based market, what they need to do is to understand about how to take some of those other practices of giving people time to invent, compartmentalizing a little bit more. And they actually are adjusting their school system for this, believe it or not, to try and bring these in there. And then the lesson for the Western side is to extend ownership and to extend these practices through all parts. In my reliability work, when there's a design that's only at the napkin stage, I can offer reliability tools that will begin to help steer this design to being something that is more reliable, easier to manufacture. Uh, you'll be able to get a better yield and better long-term uh, usage. And this is at the concept you know, stage where I don't think people traditionally would have ever thought to incorporate those those methods and ideas. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, you can, I, I think that what you're going to see going forward and we are seeing going forward is both of those cultures trying to come towards the middle. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, again, if you're working with a company that's a third party, they don't necessarily share your same interests or concerns. And, and so, again, it seems like it's that much harder to uh, influence quality and reliability with that kind of model. That, that's you right. Know, and it's not of, even just shared interest. It's that they have very limited opportunity to influence those other areas because you've compartmentalized them. With a ver they have a very specific interface with you that limits uh, that idea of that ownership being carried broader. That makes sense. Adam, in, in your consulting practice, you've worked with a variety of different companies. Do you think businesses have realistic expectations when it comes to testing and reliability? I don't believe 
I don't believe so in kind of a, a in a general broad sense, and it, it varies industry to industry, um, depending on kind of how well they've been able to uh, their industry competes on creativity versus um, uh, quality and reliability. Uh, I think that um, what you I, I think that you know kind of an interesting part of that interesting factor of that is even how much more that was exaggerated after World War II. Uh, these uh, these practices with Western culture where we, you know, we generally have this very idea of invention and driving an, uh, an industry on invention, take the automotive industry. Um, at the end of World War II, the, for the Asian um, in, uh, countries, their manufacturing process had been bombed and blown to bits, you know, very intentionally targeted their factories because that's where they were manufacturing war machines. If you look at Western, we had, our government had, you know, helped expand quite dramatically with investment and we just switched it over to, you know, going back from making war machines to cars and things like that. So we had this even, even further encouragement to, and, and removal of awareness of the effects of what we're doing because our customers didn't have a strong choice. You just kind of accepted that cars broke down on a very frequent basis. And uh, so to evolve this, it comes down to with your specific industry that you are in, and depending on like with my customers, what industry they're in, is are they at a stage where they compete a lot on features or are they beginning to compete on reliability? And as their industry matures, that becomes a very, a very significant competing factor. So um, if it's a customer in industry where invention is a big deal, what's going to happen is what I call the blind side, is they are going to continue mm -hmm. to feel like things are going well because they are gaining market share with feature ad. But at some point, that becomes you know less and less of a competing factor if other people have features that are somewhat similar or starting to catch up, um, but the, the results are much more reliable. And that's the story over and over for Western culture. There are so many examples of amazing things that were, you know, technological jumps that were invented in, let's say, the United States, but the market became entirely dominated by, you know, Eastern manufacturers, you know, things like, you know, VCRs um, and, uh, you know, copy machines and, you know, so many different things um, that we didn't, we, you very rarely, you know, uh, would have people historically to purchase an American version. You know, Adam, I think you make a great point. Uh, how many businesses are there that really compete on quality and reliability? And, you know, in so many businesses and markets, Quality and reliability is more than expected. It's the uh, there's a baseline level of performance that's required, but beyond that, there's no effort to really differentiate. That's right. I mean, there's you definitely have to have some awareness on that. And the thing is that it's going to come up on you, even if this past year it didn't. You know, uh, if you look at something like like take cars again, if you look at cars from 1900 to 1910 to 1920, the technological jumps were huge. Uh, the features that were added were tremendous. And customers were willing to have these big feature ads and have poor reliability uh, because of how beneficial they were. They were going to tolerate either having to pretty much have a mechanic on regular staff or be a mechanic themselves. Now continue to watch that industry mature over decade after decade and all of a sudden you know the feature ads are smaller and smaller. I mean a car I drive today versus you know a 20 year old car you know we like to think about the gadgets and everything but really the basic parts are the same. They're going to even write down the airbags. I mean those go back that far 20 years. Um, if I have a 20 year old car or a brand new car 
really very much the same thing. A huge factor in what I choose with a new car is reliability now because the technological jumps are smaller and smaller. So you kind of see that blind side that I described happened to American industry, which actually you know resulted in bankruptcy. It took a while to catch up, but as I was saying, you look at the 1950s, we had this fantastic you know heyday, uh, well, I guess you know heyday of being able to um, just offer our customers more and more cool, features and that's what people were deciding on oh I want that has this thing it has you know has more power has a, a really neat convertible roof and stuff but then as the eastern you know Japan was able to now build up their industry and kind of start to share more and more and compete uh, in the automotive market um, this mindset they had from the rice farming what you slowly saw was these simple little cars like Toyotas and Hondas in the 70s and early 80s uh, begin to take more and more market share. At first, they were laughed at because they were small and tinny, didn't have a lot of cool features. But you know, as they they just continued to take and grow market share, because customers more and more wanted to have reliability be you know it was a major factor in their decision on what to purchase, and less and less on just individual features. And then, of course, as you go forward, eventually, um, you know, now we become a world market, and there's more and more of a blend. I mean, American cars now are much more reliable, even just in very recent years. I mean, if you buy a Ford now versus a Ford ten years ago, the reliability is is very impressive. And of course, now if you look at Japanese cars, the features are, have become very impressive. We've very much become a world market. I mean, you know, you would have laughed hysterically 10 years ago for Hyundai to say that they're going to go after a Mercedes market. Uh, nobody's laughing now. Uh, there's, there's Hyundais out there that, you know, are being sold to what, you know, historically could have been a Mercedes, you know, customer. So, um, you know, it, it is interesting now, modern day to see the blend and this awareness coming in. But that's just one industry. You go to other industries and I still see them. They're totally blind because they've had the luxury of being able to sell on features. But that's going to come to an end. Adam, what advice would you give quality and reliability professionals who are trying to influence their companies to uh, just to, to pay more attention to reliability, even though it, it may mean a little bit of short-term cost? I don't, it's very hard to give advice to the reliability and quality people because they already know it. That's not the issue. <laughs> these, these people understand what has to be done. The advice and the people who need to investigate this and try to understand is upper management. And middle, I'm leaving out middle management because there's not a lot they can do either. Um, upper management needs to create a culture where that ownership is very broad um, and is the people who invent have ownership of the product you know very far out you see these uh, you know you, you in a strange way in a lot of times i've seen in i've seen in actual companies a system that you almost when you lay it out it almost rewards poor reliability sounds very mm -hmm. strange and it but it's very tragic because of course nobody wants to do that and the way this happens is with middle management and project managers they generally are incentivized and rewarded um, based on time to market, the features you know that are added, and cost of development and cost of manufacturing. Those are the things that are going to be set in advance as goals and measured on in the end. And how they're evaluated, whether they get a bonus or are asked to leave, can be based on those things entirely. So how does how does this you know, translate in, into the product development? Well, those things very naturally are an opposing force to reliability practices in a very healthy mm -hmm. way. But they have to be equally strong. If the you know if you're going to include a lot of reliability practices, your initial upfront investment in the development is higher, right? You're doing these things that effectively might add cost upfront in the development, might add schedule time, and right. that 
you know, in the big picture, it's a tremendous gain because if you look at the big picture and what happens later, it's a big gain. But if they aren't being measured on reliability, they, they really have to kind of push those aside to meet their goals and, you know, and, and they aren't accountable for that. And then the part that even adds more reward to that is a lot of times when a product's released and that the people who are part of developing it, the project managers and, you know, the invention team and the scientists, uh, as they go on to the next new and exciting project, and the other one fails out in the field, they get to put together a tiger team, right? They get to called back in as the experts to help fix the field issues. <laughs> they get more time in front of the executives, you know, and there's a second right, party and right. reward system at the end of that. And, and, and upper management doesn't realize they've created a system that is really almost guaranteeing that they're going to have this very frustrating situation because upper management does own the entire process, you know, front to back, but they aren't they aren't taking that ownership and helping it get down to all the other levels, middle level being the most critical. Uh, when you get down to the ground floor, uh, like you said, reliability engineers, quality engineers, design engineers, I, those are those people in a lot of, you know, get it. Even design engineers get it. But even if design engineers want to do that stuff, they can't. The people directly above them are directing otherwise. So it's, it's, it's very Adam, interesting. It sounds like uh, we need to send some of these upper management folks out to the rice paddies and learn how to how to cultivate rice. That's absolutely that's absolutely it, it, exactly. Um, and I mean, and that is that is beginning to happen. I mean, how many people are reading the book The Toyota Way? Right, that was something that really spread like wildfire for exactly this reason. The Toyota Way is effectively the modern day handbook for rice farming. When you get down to it, that you could definitely trace a lot of the practices in there right back to the the activities that made you successful as a rice farmer. So the upper management is, you know, and, and Western upper management is beginning to um, become very aware of the value of that. But that is exactly where we need to target to change and help our Western companies ensure that they maintain, you know, get the leads because they can take their creative practices. And if you couple that with these good reliability and quality practices, there's no stopping you. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and to, to get that in there, but that has to be starting at the top with that education because the people in the middle and the bottom are, are caught and being driven in a system that even if they're very passionate about it, they can't. Myself as a reliability engineer, if you made me a project manager in that situation I described, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to include a lot of reliability. You know, even somebody's as passionate about it as I am, I'm not going to include a lot of reliability practices in my project because I'm going to be late, I'm going to be over budget, and I'm going to get fired. And it doesn't, I, I can't, even if I want to. So, You, you know, Adam, um, there seems to be some uh, kind of a breakdown of communication sometimes between reliability professionals and uh, senior management. And I think some of this confusion comes about because of the science and statistics of reliability itself. What, what advice can you give to help bridge that gap between the reliability engineers who have the expertise and the senior managers who need to understand what they're saying? One of the first things I always do when I either am educating you know, a, uh, a product development group or beginning to set up practices for them is I try to create a metric and a language that links the business part to the technical part. If you kind of do practices that are traditionally where you have your technical people, you know, in steering meetings and other kinds of updates, just communicate in their language, it's very far separated from the business language. The business people are not going to understand that. You have to create actual measurable parameters that are in business language. And mm -hmm. once you right. do that, I mean, you have this very simple 
doesn't need any exp doesn't need any explanation metric. I mean, at the end of the day with the rice, you you have an exact measure of your yield. You have a 12 by 12 foot plot, and you have an exact amount of rice that you know came out of it. You can have just be a yield percentage. That's it. Everybody understands that. You know, down a child to somebody from an entirely different part of the world is going to understand how much rice did you get from that. You need to have a you need to have a parameter like that. Once you have that and it has business meaning, you can now create programs that based around that parameter measure and systematically improve that parameter. And you can set the, now once you have that, you can set business goals that you're going to help make um, um, project um, management decisions on the whole way through based on that parameter. And it's no longer you have management saying to engineers, this thing better be reliable. And they say, we're going to make it reliable. Like it just these very abstract statements. You have an actual number <laughs> of like, what's the percentage, what's the percentage yield of the rice, you know? And you say, well, it, you know, we're hoping for ultimately a 97% yield for the rice at the end of, you know, at the end of the season. And they say, well, you know, what are, and then you have yields to show in comparison to different variables you've done before as you're going forward. And you're making business decisions on you know, actual quantitative business decisions the whole way through the program. And there's never this sense of not knowing and being out of touch. Wow, that's great. Adam, thanks so much for your insights. You're very welcome. That was Adam Barrett, owner and lead reliability engineer at Apex Ridge Reliability. For more information about Apex Ridge Consulting Services, training seminars, and testing services, go to www.apexridge.com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for joining us.